Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Maria Bowen, and I am a medication safety and drug information specialist at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today are Cindy King, ambulatory care pharmacist at Metro Health System and associate professor at Northeast Ohio Medical University, or Neomed, and Alex Hoffman, associate professor of pharmacy practice at Neomed and ambulatory care clinical pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Cindy and Alex. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us today. Let's get into today's topic, aspirin use for primary prevention. To kick us off, Alex, what is the history of aspirin use for primary prevention? Aspirin actually has a long and interesting history. It's one of the first modern medicines as we understand them today, and it was first manufactured for public use in 1904. Aspirin's use to reduce secondary cardiovascular events was first comprehensively studied in the ISIS-2 trial, which was published in The Lancet in 1988, and it continues to see widespread use. Between 1988 and 2010, nine major trials evaluated the effectiveness of aspirin therapy for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in a variety of patient populations. In these trials, aspirin doses range from 50 milligrams to 650 milligrams daily, although all of the trials after 1998 used a dose of 100 milligrams or less. The results of these trials, including the Prevention of Progression of Arterial Disease and Diabetes trial, and the aspirin for asymptomatic atherosclerosis trial were mixed. Some trials showed benefit, while others did not. Aspirin use was also routinely linked to increased incidence of major bleeding during these trials. When you look at aspirin recommendations, though, specifically the USPSTF guidelines over the last 20 years, you get a much rosier picture of aspirin. The 2002 guidelines widely recommended aspirin to all patients at risk for CVD, a grade A recommendation. The 2009 guidelines from USPSTF recommended that men over the age of 45 and women over the age of 55 up to the age of 79 receive aspirin as long as their risk of cardiovascular disease was higher than GI bleeding. These were also grade A recommendations, with the USPSTF noting that the use in younger patients was not recommended, a grade D recommendation, and use in older patients was insufficient to assess, a grade I. One major special population of note is patients with diabetes who have a two to four times greater risk of cardiovascular disease than the general population. Similar to the USPSTF recommendations at the time, the ADA and AHA issued guidance in 2007 that recommended low-dose aspirin for all patients who were at increased risk for cardiovascular disease, which essentially was any patient with diabetes over the age of 40 and with one additional risk factor for cardiovascular disease. What this meant was that up until quite recently, there were a lot of patients on aspirin for primary prevention, even though the evidence was not clear that aspirin therapy was appropriate in all of those patients. It is important to note that there was not a homogenous positive opinion of aspirin over the last two decades. Some of the most important clinical trials of the time showed no statistically significant difference in cardiovascular disease rates in patients using aspirin versus those who were not. 
And some meta-analyses noted that the benefit that patients receive from using aspirin was offset by the risk of major bleeding. Over time, guidelines from USPSTF were tempered as additional study data was released and new models for risk assessment gained prominent use. We see a trend away from higher frequency use in the USPSTF 2016 guidelines, moving to an ungendered recommendation of a grade B for patients between the ages of 50 to 59 and grade C for patients between 60 and 69 at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. And over the last three years, we've really seen a change in attitudes from guideline writers regarding aspirin for primary prevention. The 2019 ACC AHA guidelines gave a much more limited recommendation for aspirin therapy than previous guidelines. Based on the results of some major trials we'll be discussing today, the game changer, if you want to call it that, was the 2022 USPSTF recommendations, which significantly curtailed the use of aspirin for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. This guideline change made headlines across national and local media and kicked off a lot of the changes in attitude towards aspirin that I'm seeing in practice today. Excellent. Thank you, Alex, for that introduction and overview. Next, Cindy, can you discuss the waning benefits and better recognized risks of aspirin therapy? Absolutely. As we just discussed, this long-time glowing benefit of aspirin that many in the medical field and patients in our communities held to be true for years may not be so clear-cut or as beneficial as we once thought, specifically for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. The current USPSTF guidelines recommend a patient-centered approach for adults aged 40 to 59 years of age with an ASCVD risk score of 10% or greater, specifically looking at their 10-year risk. And this needs to be in patients who are not at a high risk of bleeding. So to better understand this, let's dive into some of the risk assessment tools that we have to be able to determine this 10% greater risk and to look at bleed risk. The American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association working groups that developed the 2013 guidelines on the assessment of cardiovascular risk developed a new assessment equation called the ASCVD risk score, which I'm sure we all use in practice today. This evaluates the 10-year risk of non-fatal myocardial infarction, coronary heart disease, and non-fatal or fatal stroke. The inclusion of stroke separates the ASCVD risk score from the prior risk predictor, Framingham's. The primary purpose of this new risk assessment tool was to help to guide decision-making for statin initiation in patients age 20 to 70 years without ASCVD or diabetes and whose LDL was between 70 and 189 milligrams per deciliter. Despite this, USPSTF and other studies, which we'll discuss next, have utilized this risk assessment to determine the potential benefits of aspirin therapy. The risk score includes patient sex, age, race, total cholesterol, HDL, systolic blood pressure, diabetes status, hypertension requiring treatment, and smoking status. It only assesses patients who do not have cardiovascular disease or for use in primary prevention. And it is only designed to assess that risk in patients prior to them starting statin therapy. Using this risk calculator after a patient is already on statin therapy will not provide accurate results. Now let's look at the assessment tools that are available to assess a patient's bleed risk. The HasBleed score is a well-validated tool to assess bleeding risk. 
This risk assessment considers uncontrolled hypertension, abnormal renal function, abnormal liver function, history of stroke, bleeding tendencies or predisposition, labile INR, age greater than 65, alcohol use, or medications that increase the risk of bleeding, such as NSAIDs, aspirin, and anticoagulants. A score of three or more is indicative of a high score and the need for regular clinical review and follow-up. This does not mean that the patient should not be on an anticoagulant or antiplatelet, however, that they would need closer follow-up. Some of the components of this risk assessment may be potentially reversible, such as uncontrolled blood pressure, labile INR, or concomitant use of NSAIDs. Other bleeding risk assessments, including hemorrhage and atria scores, were evaluated along with the HasBled score in a systematic review and meta-analysis published in Clinical Cardiology in 2015. This review showed that the HasBled score is superior to the hemorrhage and atria scores as predictors of bleeding and should be used as the optimum choice to assess major bleeding risk in clinical practice. It is important to note that all of these risk scores have a major limitation. They were not developed or designed to assess the benefits or risk of aspirin therapy for primary prevention. Remember, a few minutes ago, we talked about the ASCVD risk score was created to assess the 10-year risk to determine the use of statin therapy for primary prevention in non-diabetic patients with an LDL between 70 and 189. For our HasBled, hemorrhage, and atria scores, these are validated to predict the risk of major bleeding for patients anticoagulated due to atrial fibrillation. Despite this major limitation, these tools are available to help clinicians to better understand a patient's risk, both bleeding and the risk of cardiovascular disease, including myocardial infarction, stroke, and coronary heart disease. Thank you, Cindy. Now that we've talked about identifying the risks and benefits in our patients, can you review some recent literature on aspirin use for primary prevention? Alex, we'll start with you. Absolutely. So recent changes in the USPSTF guidance on aspirin largely stem from three major double-blind multi-center trials conducted between 2005 and 2016, ARRIVE, the aspirin to reduce risk of initial vascular events, ASPRI, the aspirin in reducing events in the elderly, and ASCEND, a study of cardiovascular events in diabetes trials. Each of these trials evaluated low-dose aspirin therapy compared with placebo in a specific patient population, and all were published in 2018. Let's start with the ARRIVE trial, which enrolled men 55 years or older and women 60 years or older with an average cardiovascular disease risk qualified as three or more risk factors among the following. High total or LDL cholesterol, a current smoker, low HDL, high blood pressure or on blood pressure medicine, or a positive family history of cardiovascular disease. Exclusion criteria included cardiovascular health issues, patients who required antiplatelet therapy, patients with high bleeding risk, and patients with diabetes. 12,546 total patients were enrolled with an average follow-up period of 60 months. The primary endpoint was a composite outcome consisting of time to first occurrence of confirmed myocardial infarction, stroke, cardiovascular death, unstable angina, or transient ischemic attack. 
Safety endpoints included bleeding events that were graded according to the GUSTO criteria, a three-point scale that grades bleeding events as severe, moderate, or mild. In the ARRIVE trial, the mean age was 64 years, with 30% of participants being female, 28% who were current smokers, and 43% on current statin therapy. The average ASCBD risk for this patient population was 17%, but despite that estimated risk, the actual 10-year rate of events was around 8.5%, which is significantly lower than the estimate. In the intention to treat and per-protocol populations, event rates were similar between groups, about 4%. For the safety analysis, though, the results were similar between groups except for gastrointestinal bleeding, with resulting a much higher number in the aspirin group compared to the placebo group. It's also important to note that the ARRIVE trial specifically decided to exclude patients with diabetes because the ASCEND trial was also underway at the time. The ASCEND trial enrolled patients 40 years and older with diabetes and no known vascular disease. 15,480 patients were enrolled with an average follow-up period of 30 months. The primary endpoint was a composite time to first non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, excluding confirmed intracranial hemorrhage, transient ischemic attack, or death from any vascular cause. The primary safety endpoint was the time to first major bleeding event. The demographics of patients in the ASCEND trial were overall very similar to that of the ARRIVE trial, with the key difference being these were all diabetic patients. The mean age was 63 years, with 28% of the participants being female, 8% who were current smokers, and 75% on statin therapy, which was nearly double that of patients in the ARRIVE trial who were on statin therapy. The primary efficacy outcome was significantly lower in the aspirin group compared to placebo, 8.5% versus 9.6%. This difference may be due to the fact that diabetic patients have a two to four times greater risk of developing cardiovascular disease than the general population. The primary safety outcome showed a significantly higher incidence of major bleed in the aspirin group compared to placebo. 4.1% versus 3.2%. The majority of bleeds were gastrointestinal at around 40%, followed by sight-threatening bleeding of the eye and intracranial bleeds at 21% and 17% respectively. While aspirin in this study did result in a 12% lower risk of serious cardiovascular events, this was countered with a 29% increase in risk of major bleeding. Both the ASCEND and ARRIVE trials had a slightly younger patient population, which contrasts them with the ASPRI trial, which was specifically designed to look at the use of aspirin in the healthy elderly patient. In this trial, white patients 70 years and older and Hispanic and Black patients 65 and older with no known vascular disease and with a life expectancy of more than five years were enrolled. The exclusion criteria excluded patients with severe disease and dementia, as well as medication use, which would be expected to increase bleeding risk with aspirin use. 19,114 patients were followed for a median of 4.7 years. Unlike the other two trials, which cared about time to first incident, ASPRI focused on disability-free survival, which was defined as the absence of a composite of all-cause mortality, dementia, or persistent physical disability. 
As expected from a trial designed to enroll older adults, the mean age was 75 years, with 56% of participants being female and 11% of patients having diabetes. For the primary outcome, rates of disability-free survival were similar between the groups. The safety outcomes showed increased major hemorrhage, increased intracranial bleeding, increased upper gastrointestinal bleeding, increased all-cause mortality, and increased cancer mortality in the aspirin group compared to placebo. The increase in all-cause mortality was mainly driven by cancer-related deaths. In this elderly patient population, low-dose aspirin therapy was not beneficial compared to placebo. The use of disability-free survival as a major endpoint for ASPRI also highlights the shift towards a more patient-centered outcomes measure in clinical trials. I think this is a positive trend because it recognizes that it's not just the quantity of life, but the quality of patient's life that matters. All three of these trials provide strong evidence that aspirin is not as beneficial for primary prevention as we once thought. It is unknown whether this is due to aspirin alone or more than likely due to improvements in overall clinical management of cardiovascular disease, which includes statin therapy, hypertension management, and also more invasive management of stable angina. Because of these other changes in management and prevention of cardiovascular disease, the benefits of aspirin were not shown to outweigh the risks in these trials. Thank you both for that excellent review. Next, can you discuss how to have conversations with patients about de-prescribing, as well as potentially when our patients are recommended to continue aspirin use? Cindy, we'll start with you. Thank you. So I will start by talking about de-prescribing. When it comes to de-prescribing, I find that patients are typically in one of two main camps. One, that they have heard or read that aspirin may not be as beneficial for everyone. Or two, they still firmly believe that aspirin is the pill that will save them. Obviously, these are two very different de-prescribing conversations that have to be adjusted based on the patient's starting point. For patients who are in camp one, those who have at least heard that aspirin may not be appropriate, I typically discuss that the new studies have allowed us to better understand the benefits, but also the risks of taking aspirin therapy. And for many patients, that those risks outweigh the benefits. I briefly review the risks and recommend discontinuation of aspirin. And for the most part, patients are on board with that. But then when we look at patients who are in camp two, that they firmly believe that this is a miracle pill that will save them, I focus more on what the actual benefits are and how they are not as significant as what we once thought. We discuss which patients aspirin is still good for and how that patient does not really fit into that group. For both groups of patients, I do make it clear that just because we are stopping aspirin, that this does not mean that it is impossible for the patient to have a cardiovascular event. On several occasions, patients have agreed to stop aspirin. They go home, they talk to their family members, and their family members end up convincing them to restart. And then we have to have the conversation again at the next appointment. Sometimes this also involves getting the family members involved in those conversations as well so that we can have more of an absolute resolution of discontinuation of the aspirin. Isn't that something that is so true? I've also run into that same situation where a patient stops aspirin and then goes home and or talks to a neighbor and then comes back back on aspirin. In terms of continuing aspirin, 
like Cindy, I have found that my patients in my practice fall into one of two groups when it comes to discussions around continuing aspirin therapy. The first group are patients who have heard in the news that aspirin therapy may no longer be recommended and who have a clear indication for aspirin therapy. For example, a patient with a heart transplant or a recent cardiovascular event. These are patients with whom I discuss the benefits of continuing aspirin therapy and the rationale for its use. Sometimes these patients have already stopped their aspirin at home, and the conversation happens in the middle of medication reconciliation. I'm going through the medicine list, and they say, oh, I don't take that anymore. I heard on the news it's no good anymore. I often try to contrast the reasons for their use of aspirin for example, preventing something from happening again from the reasons people have been stopping aspirin that have been reported in the news, preventing something from happening in the first place. The second group is patients who have an unclear indication where there is a need for an informed decision-making process with the patient to determine the appropriate course of action. If we think about the USPSTF guidelines, only our youngest patients with low bleeding risk and high ASCVD risk are likely to benefit. As clinicians, we need to think long and hard about whether we should continue aspirin therapy in this patient population, and we need to make sure that all of our other risk-lowering therapies are appropriately maximized. For example, if you have a patient who has elevated cholesterol, is the patient on an appropriate statin intensity for their risk stratification? If these criteria are all met, then it's incumbent on the caregiver to have a conversation with the patient about the risks and benefits of aspirin therapy. If a patient wants to continue to use aspirin, this conversation should be regular and ongoing because the risk of bleeding increases with age. Thank you both for that excellent insight. So we've had a great conversation regarding reviewing aspirin use, risks and benefits, recent clinical trials, and conversations with our patients regarding aspirin use. I'd like to take this opportunity to open the floor for any final thoughts and conclusions. So I would just like to say, while for many, both healthcare providers and the community alike, we have typically viewed aspirin as very safe and only beneficial. Thanks to newish literature, we now have a better understanding of the risks and benefits. This has resulted in a need for a change in our practice. Starting patients on a low-dose aspirin for primary prevention results in an approximate 50% proportional increase in the risk of bleeding which is likely not outweighed by the benefits for most patients. Based on our discussion today, patients who are not currently on aspirin therapy, initiating a low-dose aspirin therapy is no longer routinely recommended for primary prevention. New evidence shows that the benefits do not generally outweigh the risks of bleeding. For those patients who are already on aspirin therapy, one of the main points around aspirin use is that we need to actively be thinking should this patient be on aspirin. For patients with an ASCVD risk score of less than 10% or those at high risk of bleeding, they should really be taken off their aspirin therapy. This assessment or review is not just a one and done activity. This is really a paradigm shift in practice. Both providers and patients are used to aspirin being a staple of primary prevention. Because of this, I really encourage you to think about how to incorporate the appropriateness of aspirin therapy into your workflow. One technique that worked well in my clinic was creating a smart phrase to help my learners think through the appropriateness of aspirin therapy. We also had a built-in question into our documentation about whether or not aspirin therapy is appropriate for this patient. 
Cindy brought up some great points. And I would lastly say that this is a topic that requires continuous education and support of other caregivers. Pharmacists as the drug therapy experts can be a resource for other providers, including nursing staff, physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. I know in my clinic, one of the major things that I've had to do is host learning sessions about aspirin for our providers to give them up-to-date information about when to use aspirin and not. And that's been helpful to change the aspirin prescribing practices in our clinic. Thank you so much, Drs. Alex Hoffman and Cindy King for joining us for today's episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHV's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Connect Communities, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.